Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. All right, well, welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Technip FMC campus with Andrew Capello, product line manager for controls and automation for Surface at Technip FMC. Andrew, how are you doing today? Doing great, thanks. Good, good. We're, we're doing a little better than we were last week, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we, uh, for all the listeners out there, we tried lining this up last week. And for anyone who probably lives in the U.S. or anywhere around us knew that Houston was getting, you know, getting hit pretty hard with rain again. And anytime it rains around here, people are on pins and needles, especially after Harvey. So, I know our office was shut down and, you know, we, we obviously rescheduled our podcasting. And so certainly appreciate your willingness to be flexible and, and have me here at your beautiful campus here and sort of the northeast side of Houston here. It's, it was quite the jaunt all the way from the energy corridor, but it was certainly, you know, coming through here, you, you kind of turn off the beltway and going down this road. And I was not, I was like, you know, this kind of seems odd. And then all of a sudden you come across this monstrosity of a campus. How long have you guys been here before? I mean, it, it seems pretty new. Yeah, it's a relatively new campus and we do have facilities all over Houston. But since the merger, we've been consolidating and bringing a lot of folks back here to this campus. Okay. So was this primarily an FMC campus or a Technip campus? The campus was commissioned under FMC Technologies. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, cool. No, a little history for it. I, you know, being on the drilling side, I don't, I'm not too familiar. I mean, I actually had a cousin, or I, you know, still have a cousin who sold wellheads for FMC up okay. in Canada. And so I know it's a company that's been around a long time and you guys have, you know, combined and just doing a lot of cool stuff nowadays. And, you know, the way you guys market your products, just even talking to you for a few minutes, you guys are on the front line of a lot of, you know, neat stuff. And I'm sure a lot of the, you know, the, the industry and a lot of your customers are certainly excited and appreciate your guys' willingness to kind of push the envelope in a few different areas, which I'm excited to talk about today. So have you ever you been on a podcast before? No, no, this is my first one. First time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you listen to podcasts? I do from time to time. Yeah. Okay. Any ones in particular, any subjects that you're interested in? Well, you know, I'm a software engineer by trade, so I listen to lots of different ones just about technology and, uh, you know, technology and society. Cool. No, it's uh, I love the platform. Just the ability to, to share information and share knowledge and tell some stories along the way. It's, it's exciting. And so I'm certainly excited to have you here with me today. And Again, thanks for the hospitality here so far. It's been great. A big shout out to Mark LaCour for making the introduction. I've been actually looking forward to this episode for a while. It's been in the works for a bit now. Before we get going, I just want to say this episode's fueled by Perfect Keto. So whether you're on a keto diet or simply looking for a healthy snack alternative and a resource for healthy eating, perfectketo.com offers it all. And stuff, you know, one of the reasons I like those types of snacks is they don't spike your blood sugar. And if anyone out there is somewhat familiar with biology, you know, it's those spikes in blood sugar at lunch that kind of get you tired for the afternoon. So, you know, kind of helping with that, it's been a great resource for me. So anyone out there looking for that, hit them up and check them out. And before, you know, we dive into the questions here, let's take a quick break. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do me a huge favor to take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. Also, if you feel like you have a great story, an idea for a show, or if you simply have any questions, please hit me up on LinkedIn. I've had a lot of people hit me up lately, whether asking questions about podcasting, specific subjects that, you know, with people that I've had on the show. So I just, I love the interaction and, you know, please feel free to hit me up anytime. I'm always willing to chat. 
So Andrew, tell me a little bit about your background, uh, you know, where you're from and how you ended up here in Houston sitting across the microphone. Yeah, I am a software engineer by trade Mm -hmm. and we came to FMC Technologies. I came to FMC Technologies as part of an acquisition of a uh, controls and automation company that was purchased by FMC Technologies in 2012. Okay. Which one was that? Are you able to disclose? Yeah, it's a company called Control Systems International. Okay. For many years in many different capacities, I, I was a software engineer and ultimately the product architect of a product called UCOS, which is a controls and automation system, hmm. which is now wholly owned by Technip FMC and which we can adapt to very special purposes for automating oil and gas processes. Interesting. So that company was oil and gas originally then or they were predominantly oil and gas but but all also delivered applications throughout other vertical markets in the automation space water and wastewater it's still the control system for example for the hong kong airport oh wow yeah there's a couple different projects there but you know it's the SCADA system for the trans alaska pipeline and some other fairly large and more notable projects wow so i guess you know the company looked at you guys and just seeing the value that you guys could bring and tack on to their company and so it was seems like it was a win-win for everybody yeah at the time of the acquisition in 2012 the price of oil was quite high mm-hmm. and fmc technologies revenue mix was very skewed to the subsea side at that point in time okay and the intention of the acquisition of of UCOS was to use it as an upstream offshore production automation system ah so our biggest application then was an application called master control station which is governs all the processes and controls of subsea trees and manifolds for oil production gotcha offshore so let's back up a little further. How did you get into software you know, engineering and, and, and sort of that realm of business? I mean, growing up, were you always interested in that kind of stuff? I mean, yeah. tell us a little bit about the guts as to why this all happened. You know, I had a Commodore 64 when I was a kid, and okay. it was my favorite toy. <laughs> yeah, for, for the folks who don't know what that is, please explain. <laughs> it was one of the first, you know, cost-effective PCs that you could get and, and put on your desk. Wow. And, you know, I, I started programming when I was a very young teenager. Cool. And I always had a, had a passion for it. Yeah. Okay. And that was where? Because you said you're from California, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah very that cool. Was, that was in California. Our, our, the, the UCOS business unit that makes the, the UCOS product today still is in Irvine, California. Okay. But uh, I was born and raised in uh, Orange County, okay. uh, California. I've lived in, in various spots, but uh, primarily uh, Orange County. Nice. Do, are, do you still travel back and forth or do you live here now? That's a tough question yeah, to answer, yeah. I guess. <laughs> well, I, I've, I've been on the road for, this week will complete, I've been on the road for seven out of the last eight weeks. So yeah, I, I'm based out of California, but I, I wish I could say recently I've spent more time there. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I spend a lot of time in Houston. The product line, my product line is based out of Houston. Yeah. But we have team members in Scotland and Singapore as well. Very cool. So we're spread around. Yeah, no kidding. Well, because I looked at your signature on your email and it said Irvine, California, right? Mm-hmm. Is That's that, right. Is that where you guys are based out of then? You're... That's where the, the product and project engineering services are primarily based out of for the controls and automation platform. I got you. And then so did you go to school in California as well? Or I did. I attended UC Irvine. Okay. How was that? They, do they do a lot of, I mean, I would imagine being there, was it just for convenience or did they have a special program that you really were interested in? Or Well, at the time that I went to college, which was the early 90s, there were not a whole lot of computer science programs okay. in the country. There, there, there were a few, but at the university I was at in Georgia Tech in Atlanta, they, they didn't have it. I was studying electrical engineering there and I really wanted to study computer science. Okay. 
So I went back home to California where they had a computer science program and got my degree there. Very cool. Because, I mean, and I'm sure a lot of folks are familiar with it. A lot of the good, you know, software companies, tech startups, you know, computer science folks come out of, you know, Silicon Valley and just California in general. And, and I'm always curious, like, what, what's, what's driving that? Like, why is it so predominantly focused around that? Like, you know, similar to here's, you know, oil and gas and mm -hmm. medical. But do you have any idea or can sh shine some light on, on why that is? Yeah, I mean, I think I know some of the underlying reasons. I think predominantly it was just that there was a lot of university and research and early commercial success there. Okay. So, you know, Stanford, Berkeley had some of the earliest computer science programs. Mm -hmm. They attracted a lot of the talent there. Some of the early startups were there. Right. And it just became the, the birthplace of this sort of uh, digital revolution we've had here for the past few decades. Yeah. And, you know, since then, you know, as I understand it, California is just one of the most dominant places, even if it was its own economy, it's got the bulk of technology there. It certainly does. And it's interesting because a lot of companies and folks, you know, from around that area are, are realizing the, the the opportunity here in oil and gas. And I've met several folks at networking events actually from out there in, you know, up in New York and just areas where normally oil and gas isn't, uh, you know, very dominant or just very active, but, you know, they're, they're interested in our field and, and realizing there's just, you know, so much that we can do because, you know, historically oil and gas is in the dinosaur ages with regards to technology. And so mm -hmm. we're kind of at, you know, the tip of the iceberg, if you will, right now. And so it's exciting. I'm, I really enjoy just kind of running into folks that are, you know, involved in that sort of space. And so one of the things today I'd like to touch on is, is sort of controls and automation, which is your specialty, obviously. So, and, you know, and quite honestly, it, it's, a, it's a pretty hot topic on the streets right now. And whether it's drilling, completions, upstream, downstream, I mean, automation and, and figuring out ways to be able to manage things from in town, you know, just for, you know, for, from a drilling standpoint, you know, we had a, a solid control representative in and he was able to adjust, the, you know, the centrifuge from an iPad, you know, sitting in Houston. And I got buddies that work at Chevron, they're talking about drilling wells from the office. And so, you know, just from, a, and I speak on drilling because that's what I'm familiar with, but, you know, even on the frac side, you know, you were briefly showing me some things here in your office, which was, you know, kind of eye-opening and just realizing like, holy smokes, like this stuff is for real. Like, it's not just people talking about it now. It seems like people are really doing it. So I'd really like for you to kind of describe your experience and what you're involved in and sort of the evolution at Technip FMC around this subject, if you would. Sure. No problem. Yeah. yeah. As you mentioned, you know, automation is becoming a huge subject in this space. If for, for the folks that haven't had the chance to get out to some of the more active uh, shale basins, what you see in places like the Permian, no matter what kind of business you go into, if it's a restaurant or a store, they've got help wanted signs out front. I mean, yeah. they are out of people and particularly in the oil field. Yeah. And so there are customers, whether they're big or small, are looking for ways to increase the amount of oil they can produce with more or less the same workforce. Right. We have customers who want to double or triple their production in the Permian, knowing full well they cannot double, trip or triple their staff because the people just aren't going to be there. Ah. And so automation is going to be the key to that. And we ourselves, our, 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 our services, our oil field services, we want to be able to do double the services with the same staff. Of course. So it's not necessarily just delivering automation systems to our customers. It's actually employing them on our own equipment 
in our own oil field services operations. Right, right. So what are some of the unique projects that, that you can talk about right now that, that you're directly involved with? Well, yeah, one of, one of the big ones we have is, is frack pad automation. We have uh, a lot of R&D efforts. They are coupled with other core product development efforts that we're doing, namely with our, our own control system. One of the things that's a little bit different about Technip FMC is that we do have our own control system okay. where we can change the core product. So what that means is that there's a lot of people out there that are automating things, but they're using other people's automation solutions. So they're using uh. traditional programmable logic controllers and distributed control systems that are made and manufactured by other people. Right. And what that means is that they can, they can extend the benefits that those systems offer, but where the product falls short, they have to live with it. Right. For us, we can extend our core product and adapt it directly to the uses that, that make it more special, built for purpose for oil and gas applications. So, you know, and, and can you speak a little bit more on where that adds value? You know, you kind of touched on it, but like, why is that so important, you think? I mean, because you're essentially, you're kind of vertically integrated, right? Yeah, well, uh, in, in, in the context of frac, for example, we're automating things that have just never been automated before. Mm-hmm. So in our R&D programs, we're, we're working with majors to ha- and we're iterating with them. Every quarter, we're doing a new iteration of our frac pad automation, starting just with sensing, Mm-hmm. going all the way into complete automation and control okay. where a single individual can sit in a command center and operate the frack. Interesting. So can you give an example for someone who's maybe, you know, not 100% familiar with sort of the, the cycle in which that happens, but like, and if you can, like, you know, say five years ago, what it looked like and through now automating, I mean, does that drastically reduce the people on the, on the, you know, on location you know, are you able to do things from, you know, town versus out in the field? Like, wh- wh- what does that kind of look like? Like, what's tangible about that? Well, I, I think there's, there's two main drivers for automating in, in frac. Mm-hmm. Number one is safety. Our company and the oil and gas industry in general, safety is a huge topic. Of course. For us, it's a, it's a passion. And the challenge with, with safety is, that, is to keep people away from equipment that can harm them. Because, you know, we'd love to make physical devices that are infallible. But mm-hmm. you know, if we learn anything from the 737 MAX, we learned that even our most passionate engineers who are safety conscious in everything that they do mm-hmm. can sometimes make mistakes and things can go wrong. Right. And the idea of automation is that something will eventually go wrong, something can go wrong, but a person won't be there. Correct. Because the equipment's replaceable and the people aren't. Yeah. And the second thing is efficiency. And they're, they're interlinked because in a typical frack operation, what happens is that the frack operation has to shut down in order for people to go near the pressurized equipment. Mm-hmm. So our goal with the automation is twofold. We can make it safer and we can make it more efficient because the, the frack operations never technically need to stop if you can automate the things that draw people close to the equipment. That makes sense. And it's funny, you, you, you actually tied right into my other question was going to be, you know, how this actually ties into safety. And ultimately, at the end of the day, if you have less people out there, there's less probability and less, you know, less risk involved. So equipment's replaceable, but obviously people are not. So I like, you know, where the driving force is with that. And, you know, the focal point being around safety, making sure, you know, our family and friends get home safe, because, you know, in the oil field, it's, you know, there's a lot of tragic events that happen, similar to a lot of other industries. And even just driving home or driving to the airport, you know, they're always at risk. But if you can somewhat eliminate that risk and, and really drive that home, you know, to your customers, to employees, 
it just creates a very, you know, good culture. And that's one thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, going from, it was called you, you, what was the company that you used to work for? Control System International and product is called UCOS. UCOS. So from a cultural standpoint, you know, have you, was there a big shift going from there, you know, into technical FFMC and what do you see? I guess it's kind of two questions, that one. And then right now, has there had to be a big culture change in just the way sort of people think about things and how they approach different ideas? Because automation and digitalization and, and doing all that, it, it takes, you know, people not not only management pushing it because they see the value, but it also, it, it's important to get everyone on board and, and share the vision and embrace that culture to where everyone's driven to succeed and and really have the same type of vision. So can you kind of speak on that a, a little bit? Sure. Yeah, yeah, it was there was a big culture change. Control Systems International was a small company and UCOS is a small group even today. The 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 headcount out in Irvine is uh, 50 people. Okay. And you know, it's it's a it's a change to go to a company the size of Technip FMC which now after the merger in 2017 is is over 40,000 employees. Wow. So there's there's culture shifts there. Things work differently. Yeah. You dress differently. Sure. You, you, you know, you use different language. And, and so, yeah, that, that, that was a, that was a challenge. But in, in terms of the, the culture challenges, I think that we're faced with today there, if you look at frack pad automation, again, as an example, there's, there's two primary constraints. One is cost, mm-hmm. you know, wh- whether the majors are slightly less cost sensitive, they won't tell you that they'll tell you that, you know, cost is front and center of course but in the reality as you get down to the to, to the smaller operators it becomes more and more of a concern mm-hmm. but but for, from the automation perspective in, in terms of of culture and people our biggest challenge is usability so you know we're quite fortunate today that we have products that that are very easy to use most things don't come with with user manuals anymore you know when i first got started in technology everything came with a 300 page book yeah. You know, that you really had to read at least the first few chapters of to even crack the hatch on something new. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, you know, my, my niece comes over to my house and she pulls open my iPad and she knows how to play her favorite games on it. Right. And, you know, she's young. She's five, you know. Yeah. And so the usability of equipment that, that is out there today for automation is not there. You know, there's legacy products. Their legacy technology providers, and in order to understand how to use their systems, you have to be trained at either a technical university or, or you know, trade school. Yeah, you need some time on the job, and then you're able to to, to use automation equipment. We're not going to have a luxury like that in the oil field. The typical persona that you run into is a you know, a roughneck. Yeah, somebody who knows how to use his iPhone, maybe to for a dating app or for getting email, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the things yeah. that are important to oil field workers. Yeah, <laughs> but probably is not going to know how to map Modbus addresses or know a whole lot about PLCs, and is is going to be some someone who's culturally averse to being taught those things. So we are confronted with a situation where it's it's a benefit to have our own control system because we can modify the core product to give it that. Apple level of simplicity, r- simplicity and relatability to where for sure we, 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 we can, we can put it in somebody's hand and in a few minutes they can see where we're going with it and, mm. and, and start using it. And I, I think that's our biggest in terms of a culture, yeah. a challenge we're facing, whether it's fra- in frack or other applications. Wow. You know, I never even really thought of that just because, you know, any piece of technology that I've had in, you know, in my space is yeah, like literally been, you know, iPhone, email, 
stuff like that. And, and on the drilling fluid side of things, we are now as a company getting, we hired a couple of data folks to come in and create a, a sort of an analytics platform. And, and the reason I say that is, you know, growing up, I was actually very interested in computers and I never really got into like the software and coding and stuff, but just diving into the guts and, and really being able to figure software out for me just kind of came quite easy. And so, you know, we use a system that for me, I can navigate it within a few minutes, figured it out. But a lot of the folks that are in our office that are that know how to analyze the data, you know, you get them trying to sort of navigate different types of software. And, you know, most of their experience is hands on at the rig that, you know, worked their way up, came into the office and are now expected to have these this sort of fundamental skill set of of you know, technical software type stuff. And unless you've went to school or you've been exposed to it, which at the rig site, you know, a lot of times you're not, but it's, it's getting to be a little bit more predominant. But yeah, I can see that presenting a serious challenge. And so I guess another question I have is, is are, are you guys having to shift the way you either train or even hire? I mean, are, I mean, I would assume that there's different criteria now that you look for that may be more sort of kind of you know when you if, if you look at someone you know's resume or if someone who's looking for a job it might be more attractive to look at someone versus historically someone else does that sort of play into what you guys are facing at all is it like the hiring and training type stuff absolutely yeah yeah i mean we are looking for more technology people in this industry mm-hmm. and and it is a challenge because you know oil and gas is its own discipline and you know it, it there's it, it requires knowledge of equipment that's that people don't run into in their everyday lives right and so it is a little bit of an overlap uh, of of technologies it's it's not that easy necessarily to find but in places like Houston it's far easier than in other places so yeah. in, in California we can find a lot of tech people but not so many tech plus oil and gas yeah but Houston is a pretty good city for 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 folks who cross over well okay no that's good to know you know it's funny actually I had a recruiter call me out of San Diego and used to work for a big headhunting firm and then broke off started his own and you know he called and, and he just happened to find me on LinkedIn and you know, we got chat and then he said, look, I'm not calling to, to try and place you, but I'm really interested. He said, you're in Houston, you're in the know. I mean, what are, you know, what are people looking to hire right now? And, and quite honestly, it's funny. It's, you know, a lot of it is your, you know, your typical roles, but the demand for looking for data scientists is like driven, you know, has gone up exponentially. And so I said, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily focus on you know, again, focus on the fundamental positions of oil and gas. But if you can find some rock star kids out of college, you know, that are solid in that space, you know, there, there's a lot of demand for that here. And like he, he kind of it was like a light bulb went off. He said, holy smokes, I never thought of that. And so, yeah, it's interesting, like just the just the sort of the, the diversity of, of disciplines coming into our spaces. It's neat to see it. And even at networking events, I've been meeting folks from all over the country who had really no experience with oil and gas but are, you know, being invited in and, and companies are appreciating sort of the unbiased, you know, look into different things. And something that I thought was neat reading an article, Anna Darko, before getting bought out, hired a team of 50 data scientists to help create like sort of a digital roadmap on how they conduct business. And yeah, they, they would crowdsource for different things. And it was just neat to see kind of their out of the box thinking and, you know, their, their sort of willingness to take the risk and get folks that, you know, five or 10 years ago, you would talk about and they, people would laugh at you. They'd be like, you want to hire who to come in this office? Are you kidding me? And I think one of the guys was uh, like a private detective out of Brazil. 
either designed some software or figured out a way to be able to analyze mud logs in like a fraction of a second. So whereas, you know, it would take weeks to analyze certain logs, figured out a way to do it in, you know, a matter of minutes. And it's just, it's, it's fascinating to see us, you know, kind of reach out and, and shift the way we think and apply different things. So, and it sounds like, you know, I would imagine you guys are sort of have a similar mindset, which is, which is really exciting. I mean, you know, where, where do you see sort of the future and what does it look like with regards to production optimization, whether it's frack or, you know, anything that you're working on through technology? I mean, what, what do you see? Do you have any sort of crystal ball sort of th- ideas? Well, you, you know, well, to, to comment on, on, on what you were talking about the, earlier there, yeah, one of the things I, I love about this job is, you know, I'm a software engineer and I, w- I was a programmer and had my head down in code for 20 years. Yeah, and one of the things that keeps my energy up to travel around as much as I do and talk to as many of the folks as I do here on a daily basis is all the different disciplines that this brings together. You know, and I'm really fortunate to work at a company that has so many talented engineers. And on any given day, I'm working with somebody who's a hydraulics engineer, somebody who's a mechanical engineer, somebody who's an electrical engineer, somebody who's a data scientist. Right. You know, we have them all here, and they're exceptional people. And, you know, we're, we're putting this together into, I, I, I believe, a vision where the, the, these products and the services are just far more seamless. Mm. And, you know, where today a lot of these technologies exist, but they, they exist in silos, and you'd need to pay a technology integrator to go and put it together. Mm. So, you know, analytics is nothing new. You know, web applications are nothing new. Mobile applications are nothing new. But for the most part, our customers are not technology integrators. Right. They do it because they have to. They do it because people haven't really delivered turnkey solutions to do the things that they need to do. Hmm. But our vision is to put together products and services that are wholly and completely integrated as turnkey solutions. They show up and on day one, they're delivering data into analytics platforms. Yeah. And, you know, controls... And automation is the place where that, that's where all this stuff meets, you know, controls is where the digital world meets the physical world. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the epicenter for, for where these things are, are, are happening today. And again, as I said, there, there's been lots of these things employed before, but for very narrow and niche applications, Yeah, you know, automating a lacked controller, automating a tank battery, automating you know, a separator, you know, so those things have been around for a while, but, but not so much when you look at the way your systems can work at home, the way you can order on Amazon, a a little audio player and you can turn it on and within five minutes, you know, using your phone, you can control the music that it's playing and it's seamlessly interacting with all the electronics that you have at home. Mm -hmm. The oil field today is light years away from that. Wow. But the oil field in just a few years might not be too far from that. Huh. And that's 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 what we're seeing and that's the digital oil field is is whether whether it's you know frack, whether it's production or whether it's even heading into midstream, we're we're looking to create that. Good for you guys. That's neat. What would you say in I mean I, I kind of have an idea of what the answer could be, but I'd like to hear it from you. What is the biggest limiter from taking you where you're at now to reaching that goal? Well, it's it's we're kind of inventing it as we go. There's no playbook for this, right? And and we need to do it in concert with the customers. And our customers aren't all uniform. They don't all think the same way. Mm. They don't all buy the same way. They don't all have the same value proposition. They don't all have the same problems. Of course. 
So we're sort of like kids in candy stores, you know, we, we've got all this, we, we, there's all this value that we know we can add, but the right steps in the roadmap are not abundantly clear. Yes. You know, we're casting a really wide net. We're, we're, we're trying to iterate fast as you have to do in the digital world and figure out what the true needs are and, you know, what the, what the price and, and benefit is that, that, that we can bring that will be benefit to, to us and to our customers. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's again, certainly exciting to see where we're headed and you know, my hat's off to you guys and kind of doing what you're doing here. And yeah, it, it's certainly exciting. So switching gears a little bit more, I mean, you know, what is it about your job? And you kind of touched on it, but like what literally keeps you coming every day, waking up, knowing you're going to hear, because you've obviously got a lot riding on your shoulders. You, you got a big team, I'm sure that works with you and underneath you. But, but what really just keeps you coming in every day and motivated? The fun of doing things that no one's done before, you know, to, to, to really push the envelope. To, you know, and, and, and it's funny, sometimes we put our solutions in front of people and they kind of look at us and scratch their head and say, where, where, where are you going with this? <laughs> but I think once they see the bigger picture, what we're really looking at and, and where we're trying to go, it's, it's, it's fun to get people on board and credit, sort of creating a movement, so to speak. Yeah. You know, when I asked the question earlier about what the biggest limiter is, anytime I ask that, most people say oil prices, mm. but you didn't even touch on that. Do I mean... Obviously, commodity prices dictate a lot, but are you guys sort of, regardless of what happens, pushing the envelope and are looking like... Automation is going to add value, whether the oil price is high or low. Cool. And, you know, when you go into a lower oil price environment, people start to turn to questions about making more, right? Because they they still need to hit their revenue targets in in the low price environment. Right. So, you know, automation has uh, different strengths in both sides, but, but, but it's, it's strong really no matter what the situation is. I think in the past, the traditional surface oil field has just looked at it as a cost, you know, and, and you, you only automated those things that you simply had to. Right. Whereas the mindset now is, well, what can we cost effectively automate? What can, what, what, what can we, you know, what, what, what's to our biggest, biggest advantage to automate now versus automating down the road? Mm-hmm. And these are the questions I think that the industry is grappling most with today. Do you, do you see sort of a difference with the generation of people within the oil and gas industry that are more pro versus more sort of risk adverse and, and less willing to take that plunge? And by that, I mean, you know, the obvious, you know, you have the sort of the older experienced generation who, you know, so to speak, riding off into the sunset, but then you have these young engineers in their, you know, low to mid twenties, early thirties that, you know, are just willing to kind of do and, and ex- try anything and everything to some degree, obviously, with doing their due diligence and, and calculating the, the added value. But do you see that being a challenge at all with, you know, just the different generations that you deal with? It plays a big role. You know, as a middle-aged person myself, I prefer to show up with the products I have and, and work with young engineers. They're just more open to, to changes. They're, they're more dissatisfied with the status quo that's out there. Right. They don't, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're more likely to, to see the benefit early on and have more of a constructive conversation. Cool. The, you know, the, the older guard is, is a, they're just a little bit more conservative and they're conservative in a conservative industry. Yes. When things go wrong, things go really wrong. When things go wrong in oil and gas, it makes the front page of the paper mm-hmm. for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. You know, that's not, the way you want to get your name in the paper. Yeah. And and so it, it's it's for good reason that they're conservative. And we have to be careful about how quickly we make these changes mm-hmm. and make sure that the, 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 the costs always, or that the you know benefits always exceed the, 
the cost and the potential downside. Of course. No, that's a great answer. Do you have any sort of daily habits or routines that you kind of focus in on? And that's more totally kind of going off from, you know, talking about TechNib and all that, but sort of, you know, going more onto the personal side of things. Do you have any daily routines or habits that, you know, you do or that kind of help create the recipe for success for you? Oh, I'd like to think I'm being successful at it, but uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's been a big transition for me to go from being an engineer and an, and kind of a, a technical lead to being a manager. Yeah, and not having everything under my direct control. Yeah. So I like to talk to people a lot. I spend a lot of time on the phone. I spend a lot of time on our. You know, we've got a thousand ways that our 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 company gives us, offers us to be in touch with people. Whether it's our engineers in Europe, our engineers in Singapore, our engineers in Houston when I'm back in California, our engineers in California when I'm back in Houston. Yeah. I think you just can't talk enough. You know, I can't, there's not enough hours in the day for me to communicate with all the people I'd like to. Sure. I have a sense of urgency to try to just stay on top of everything and, and make sure that things are going well or, or that I don't know what's not going well and that every, everyone who's counting on me for something is getting it. Yeah. And that's, you know, instead of I'm not writing code and checking code in anymore. <laughs> yeah. I'm helping people perform their to the best of their ability no matter what their discipline. Of course. And it's a big it's a big change for me. Really? So where where did you learn a lot of that skill set and in making that transition? Well, through a lot of my earlier career, I was actually self-employed. Mm. And I had a small company partner got up to 10, 12 engineers. And you, you inherently become a manager, even though I was a, an engineer myself, you know, you learn how to deal with, with people and with their, their personal issues and how their, their personal life can creep over into their professional life. And the two are rarely separate and distinct, right? They're, yeah. You work with people and people issues are, 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 as you become more of a manager, more important than the technical issues in many ways. And then the more people you're working with, the more you have people issues become challenges. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of the a lot of the the tools that that I developed were as a, a self-employed person working inside large companies for large companies because you had to find ways to lead projects without any authority. You didn't have the people you were working with did not report to you. Mm. And so you had to find different ways and different tools to influence them to get the projects done better or to higher quality or whatever the challenge was at the moment. Most definitely. No, that's a great answer. One last question. Again, something a little more on the personal side. What's something about you that not many people know about? Do you have any kind of hidden secrets or any unique hobbies or stuff that you do when you're not crushing it here at Technip FMC? Jeez, I wish I had a good answer to that. <laughs> I got a lot of things that I like to do that I haven't done as much lately as I would. Okay. You know? if, if your boss came to you and said, I don't want you, you're, you know, you're leaving your work phone, you're not picking up your cell phone anymore. You got free range to do whatever you want. What mm -hmm. would you do? I, I enjoy spending time at home with my family as Good much as, you. It, as much as it might not seem like it. <laughs> sure. But I got two young boys and they play baseball and I miss them. Yeah. No, I, it, and dude, bless your heart. And, and for the sacrifice that you make, you know, for our industry, you know, I have two kids of my own and it's easy to get wrapped up and, and, you know, the momentum and sort of the stimulating industry that we're in, it's constantly demanding, you know, you're, you're getting emails at, you know, 10, 11, 12, you know, all through, I mean, you, you work globally or deal with people globally. So it, it never shuts off. And, you know, it's interesting talking to people, especially I always, it's interesting talking to folks that, you know, kind of have been there, done that and her older, and they never say, you know, I wish I would have just put in a few more hours at work. The, the most common answer you get is I wish I would have left work alone 
and spent more time with my kid, spend more time with my loved ones. Because I can guarantee you when someone's on their deathbed, they're not going to want their boss there. They're not going to want the guy that, you know, helped them create some whatever, you know, whether it be software or piece of equipment, they're going to want their freaking family there. Mm. So, you know, you saying that, I can tell that's something that's extremely important to you, but, you know, don't, you know, all this can go away in a heartbeat. You've got a skill set. You can get a job anywhere, but, you know, don't neglect time with the family. And that just goes to everyone out there in the oil field because, you know, I know I've been there and, and, you know, a lot of the oil field families out there, they make sacrifices to pull hydrocarbons out of the ground. And, you know, it, it's, it's an important, you know, it's, it's important for our country. It's important for the, you know, the global economy, you know, and just continuing to give back to, to society. But yeah, no, that's a great answer, man. And so hopefully you can take that and, you know, get to spend some quality time with your kiddos here in the near future. So anyway, a couple more things here before we log off. I'd like to take a moment to tell everyone about some upcoming oil field events. Hey guys, we have a couple of OGGN events on deck for the next month. OGGN's next Houston Happy Hour will be on October 29th at the Cannon from 4 to 6. As always, a portion of the proceeds will go toward Redeem Ministries to fight human sex trafficking. At this happy hour, we'll be discussing the process of taking a startup from simply an idea to obtaining the first purchase orders. The panel discussion will include Saudi Aramco Ventures, Shell Ventures, NOV, SCF Ventures, Eternal Energy, and Well Diver. Our next Denver happy hour will be on November 6th. Come join us for food, drinks, and a live podcast that we will announce at a later date. A portion of this event's proceeds will go to local charities Safe House Denver and Oil Field Helping Hands. Okay, now to the events on deck. The Tamora Lestat Oil and Gas Summit 2019 will be on October 3rd through 4th in Dilly, Tamora Lestat. The SMRP third quarter West Houston chapter meeting is on October 3rd at 1130 in Houston. This event will cover the topic, Are Your PMs Preventing or Causing Failures? IPAA and TIPRO are hosting their Leaders in Industry Luncheon on October 9th in Houston. On October 14th, the Canon will be having a Disruptive Energy Workshop. The API Golf Tournament will be held on October 14th, 2019 at Kingwood Country Club. And as of right now, there are some spots still open, so be sure to check their website and register your team. The 2019 Operations and Process Technology Summit will be on October 14th through 16th in San Antonio. The summit will cover maximizing your molecular advantage, practical solutions for today, forethought for tomorrow. On October 24th, OGGN's very own Mark LaCour will be speaking at Tech to Market in Shreveport, Louisiana. The Balkans Petroleum Conference will be held on October 24th through 25th in Budva, Montenegro. The summit is the official event for the Balkans oil and gas industries. Lastly, the George H. Bush Conference this year will be on October 28th through 29th in Houston. Honoring President George H.W. Bush, the Bush-China Conference brings together Americans and Chinese to discuss critical bilateral, regional, and global issues and to generate innovative recommendations for advancing the relationship. Awesome. Thank you. Anyone out there in the Houston area that's ever played hockey or just interested in getting into hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew every other Friday. We do it at, so we do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And if you're just looking for a way to get in shape or, you know, you've got an upcoming trip that you're looking to do and you want to kind of trim some, you know, unwanted LBs, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. 
Thanks again for listening to Oil & Gas Onshore. If you're looking for more info, visit oilandgasonshore.com. And Andrew, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. If uh, people are interested about some of the stuff that we talked about or just simply have some questions, are there any good sort of resources or links or can they hit you up on, you know, whether it's LinkedIn or what, what's the best way for people to find out more information about what we talked about today? Yeah, there's a lot of ways to get in touch with me. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. You know, I've got uh, email. Those are probably the two best ways. Sure. Okay. Well, you know, LinkedIn's pretty good, you know, especially in our industry. Do you mind if I put your sort of LinkedIn link in the show notes and people can click on that? And then, I mean, of course, FMC, I can put their website, you know, link that in the show notes as well, if that's cool. Please do. Yeah, that sounds great. Awesome. Well, uh, again, everyone, thanks out there. Appreciate everyone's support and thanks for listening. And always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. Network.com.